Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Selectionary the podcast that codifies the canon of films from one of the world's greatest animation directors, Henry Selleck. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm boning up. So join us in our quest into the glorious world of Henry Selleck. Jake, Steph, welcome back. We are on the home straight almost with Henry Selleck. We've done The Nightmare Before Christmas, James the Giant Peach, now Monkey Bone, only one more film in his filmography after this. How are we feeling now we're after the halfway point? I'm quite confused, Michael. After the last two records on the side of this Zoom call, you've had these small beady eyes and you've been made out of bits of felt and material as you normally are. But all of a sudden, you look hyper real as if you could be doing this Zoom call in live action. What, what a strange phenomenon. It, is this the first time we've done a live action non-documentary on the podcast? Yes. Yeah. <gasps> historic. <laughs> Rolling out the red carpet for Monkey Bone. <laughs> it's making history on the podcast, as it should. Yeah. yeah. Add it to the many accolades that I'm sure Monkey Bone has. <laughs> Oh dear. I mean, I suppose there's nothing really we can say about this other than tackling the film head on, really. <laughs> this is Monkey Bone, Henry Selleck's foray into live action filmmaking after two stop motion feature films. Shock- well shockingly, it's his only foray into it as well. Well, precisely, and I think we'll we'll shortly find out why. But Steph, would you like to tee us up with a, with a bit of a synopsis? Sure. After a car crash sends repressed cartoonist Stu Miley into a coma, he and the mischievous monkey bone, his hilarious alter ego, wake up in a purgatory-like limbo, filled with mythical gods and creatures who revel in the nightmares of the living. So Michael, you're... Giggling throughout the synopsis there. Because he's hilarious. He's hilarious monkey bone. That's why Michael's <laughs> laughing, because of his fondness for the memory of monkey bone. Well, shall we work out where monkey bone came from? Do you want to give us some context? Absolutely. So, as we discussed on the previous episode, James the Giant Peach comes out to a good critical reception, but not to massive box office. And you'll remember that we said that Henry Selleck talks about how he was told that stop motion just wasn't viable anymore, mostly because Toy Story had completely changed the game in animation, at least as Hollywood looked at it. Um, he didn't have another feature project lined up after that. In fact, he just sort of goes back to making commercial work. But there is this one idea that comes to the fore, and it's an adaptation of a comic book called Dark Town by the writer Keisha Blackley and artist Vanessa Chong. And it's about a puppeteer who falls into a coma and finds himself in a sort of purgatory populated by living puppets and marionettes. So I think you can really see 
how Selick might be mm-hmm. excited by that creatively. It's pretty much James the Giant Peach, but with like adults and with Freudian psychology thrown into the mix as well. Um, he pursued the rights for that project and hooked up with a screenwriter by the name of Sam Ham to develop the project. Now, Ham is another connection back to the world of Tim Burton because he is the credited screenwriter on the 1989 Batman film. So together, Henry Selick and Sam Ham developed the piece, refocused the story, changed the character into a cartoonist, and then it's the this, they create this character, the main cartoon character is created, that's called Monkey Bone. <clears throat> now... Remember, Selick was without a studio at this point, sort of operating as a free agent. Uh, so he didn't really have a producer. So he, in the past, he had Tim Burton, Denise Denovi as like his producers backing him. But he was um, a bit adrift at this point. So he goes to Chris Columbus, um, who was on the cusp of kickstarting the Harry Potter franchise. Of course, at that point was um, something of a big name within family entertainment as well. They set up the production with 20th Century Fox. So he's moving from Disney to Fox and he works with an exec by the name of Bill Mechanic who had previously been at Disney and was at that point marshalling Fox through an incredibly strong decade where they really stood up, they were one of the leading studios, they had lots of the highest grossing films of particular years they'd released Independence Day, Titanic but also Bill Mechanic was very interested in fostering an independent side of Fox as well so I think around this time there's something about Mary is also a big hit for Fox um, so it's the big, the big blockbusters, the comedies. He's also interested in offbeat things as well. Selick's vision for Monkey Bone, or at least what becomes Monkey Bone, was to continue in the vein of his previous films, but with this low, low budget, edgy look and feel that reflected the fact this was an indie comic adaptation at heart. Kaja Blackley, the who wrote the comic, has shared some early artwork from that version of the film on his Twitter and Instagram. And you can see this would be very much a continuation of what we'd seen in Nightmare and James the Giant Peach. Um, and in interviews, Salik was saying he had envisioned this as being 75% animation. So maybe a wraparound live action going into a world of pure animation with his fondness for miniatures and puppets and so on. And then things happened... <laughs> And this is an incredibly messy one, so bear with me on this. So first, the production was uh, in talks with Ben Stiller to play the lead role. He was just coming off There's Something About Mary, so he had a bit of heat behind him. That changed the studio's expectations a little. Stiller wasn't happy with the script. And according to Selleck, he uh, Stiller wanted to bring in his own team of writers to punch up the script. But Selleck backed his man. He uh, stood up to... Um, to Stiller and said, no, I, I want Sam Hamm to be the writer here. So Stiller left and made Mystery Men instead, a film that came out contemporaneously with this one. And then in comes Brendan Fraser to play the lead. And he had quite a rising star behind him. He'd been quite a lot of kind of sleeper hits throughout the 1990s, but had just made The Mummy, which was um, at that point, hard to believe that now, but was really seen as almost uh, the future of, of blockbusters. And he was the star at the, at the top of it. His fee was high. And so the suits behind the production wanted to flip the entire film on its head and basically be almost all live action. Um, and there's a quote from Selleck here. Once Brendan was cast, my indie movie changed. Everything that was meant to be miniatures and animation shifted to sets and lots of actors and costumes. So you've got Henry Selleck, the master of miniatures, having to then sort of change the scale <laughs> from inches to feet and um, make them human-sized for the first time. That pushes things further away from the source material and his initial vision. Um, then in June 2000, Bill Mechanic, who was um, Selick's great sort of um, you know, backer at, at Fox, is edged out of the studio, reportedly in some sort of political um, pressure from Rupert Murdoch himself wanting to get Bill Mechanic out the door. So Selick loses his champion, and you have to really feel for the guy. Um, there's another quote that he gives about being an animation director in Hollywood that I think captures both his experience but also his character. He says, An animation director is nobody in live-action Hollywood. 
they're a tight group and they're going to test you every hour of every day you're shooting. You have to be very macho and ultra confident in your decisions, many made on the spot, because you have to live with them forever. Not like in animation where there's always more time to think things through. So he's sort of... <laughs> almost like in a log flume or something, just being pushed along um, by, by this Hollywood production process. The film becomes this odd, expensive holdover from the previous regime at Fox and the execs don't know what to do with it. There are all sorts of conflicting stories at this point. Um, the general consensus is the film was taken away from Selleck and recut by Fox. Maybe by Chris Columbus might have done a cut himself. Selleck also says that he was brought in at the last minute to make his own cut as well to try and salvage it. But basically this was cut to ribbons and then um, delayed many, many times and like unceremoniously dumped without with hardly any advertising opening weekend onto cinema screens in February 2001. And that weekend it didn't even break the top 10 at the box office. And in the end, globally... Um, it only made about $7 million, and it cost $75 million. <laughs> God, <laughs> poor guy. I mean, his films never made that much money, but that is a, an impossible bar to clear. That said, there were some good reviews out there. You can dig them out if you want to. Um, but the film was just pronounced dead on arrival. Huge box office bomb. And Selick, in his own words, said that his career just went off a cliff after that, and he was thrown in director's jail. He says um, in some interviews he really should have walked away from the project once it started to change. But then he's also said that he feels quite proud of the artistry behind the film, especially the monkey bone character itself, um, which he's called probably the most complex and interactive stop motion that's ever been done because they're doing sort of, or sort of Who Framed Roger Rabbit where it's a live action actor and an animated character interacting. But this time it's a stop motion character rather than a hand-drawn animated character or a CG animated character. So there's a lot of bells and whistles behind the scenes there. I'd recommend digging into YouTube. A lot of the VFX artists and animators have put up their test reels on YouTube because they're clearly proud of it. Um, they, they created a sort of Brendan Fraser blue screen robotic model for the monkey bone stop motion character, the puppet to um, engage with. And it's quite fun to watch. Um, Rose McGowan is in this film. Uh, she has a small role um, and she's not one to mince words, but she very recently defended the film on her Instagram. And she said, the movie would have been incredible if the men at 20th Century Fox hadn't fired the director, a true artist, Henry Selleck, halfway through filming. A profoundly stupid move. What Fox Studios turned this film into because of their fear and lack of artistic thinking was a travesty. They truly robbed us, the audience, of a possible classic. Um, I'd like to give the final word to Kasia Blackley, because, you know, we love hearing from the authors who have their work adapted by the filmmakers we talk about on this podcast. He went on the podcast Stay Tuned and talks about the experience of actually going to the premiere and watching the film, having not really been involved in the development since the very early stages. He said, I didn't recognise the picture at all. I just couldn't believe the decisions that were made because they were so poor. I'm going to give Henry the benefit of the doubt. I don't know how much power and control he had over it, but it just goes to show that when you veer too far away from the source material and you take the project out of the hands of creative people, something like Monkey Bone is what you get. And something like Monkey Bone is precisely what we've got this week to talk about. Um, it's, it's divisive, <laughs> widely derided, but there are some very strong five-star reviews out there. <laughs> particularly a letterbox if you do some digging. I can't wait to hear what you two think about it. Let's uh, move on to some reviews. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the big question of the week, isn't it? Is Monkey Bone any good? Um, I'm going to come to you first, Steph, with this question. (laughs) Well, now that I've heard that context and how like Henry Selick has been treated and he's not happy with it, I feel like I should say it's bad, but I actually quite enjoyed it. So I don't know <laughs> whose side I'm on now. Um, I think this has so much going for it, so much rewatch value and like so much genuine like artistry still in there. As much as like you've said, you know, it's been cut to ribbons and messed around and there's so much live action in there when it's supposed to be a mostly animated movie in the beginning um I do think this genuinely has some good value and I think just from the fact that from one minute to the next I have no idea what's going to happen um it's just something completely mad at every corner turn um so I am I'm batting for monkey bone this week I think I'm in that defense corner I don't know about you guys Jake how do you feel (laughs) <laughs> I I think Monkey Bone is maybe the worst film we've covered on the podcast. Like it's I'm putting it up there with like Cat Returns. Uh I I think this is very very bad. I think like yes, the craft on show at times is amazing. Um but it is a total total car crash. I I think it's like a horrendous story. Uh, I, I don't think it's funny. I think quite a lot of it's quite ugly. Uh, and I, I, there's, there's nothing to it. But the amazing thing is, like, it's like watching a car crash and everyone involved <clears throat> can probably tell it's a car crash. And instead of trying to brake, they just accelerate uh, into it. Like, everyone is, like, dialed up to 11 from a craft perspective and from an acting perspective. Like, it's like, I, I don't know. Like, I'm amazed this considering the amount of cocaine energy this film exudes it's astonishing it wasn't made in their late 80s like it's you can't look away from it i'll give it that i kind of wish i would have watched it in the cinema for that experience because i i would have been i would have thought i died or something like that i was i was in the nightmare hell and had been trapped there to watch monkey bone forever um but michael your thoughts (laughs) I find this really fascinating. So I guess I probably was around the right age to maybe have gone and seen this film when it came out. I would have been like an early teenager. But the thing with this film is that it was released too late. So this comes out in February 2001, when already the shape of the blockbuster landscape is changing. That is the year of what Harry Potter, the year of Lord of the Rings. You've had X-Men, you're about to have Spider-Man. Everything is changing at this point. This sort of film does not exist for much longer after this. This film is much more in line with films of the late 90s in terms of its sense of humor in terms of its madcap energy in terms of its sort of comic booky cartoony vibe it's very much in the same realm as idle hands mystery men basketball there's something about mary all that farley brothers stuff as well particularly where it's that sort of juvenile adult mixture Mm. where this isn't really a film for kids it's too scary for kids but it's also come out way too dumb and silly for a, a real adult audience it's also such a 1999 to 2001 type film i'm surprised that all star by smash mouth isn't on the soundtrack it's all very garishly uh, oh like even from like the typography of the opening titles 
is like so perfectly pitched to be of this era it's wonderful like kind of jagged almost post graffiti stuff like you you they would have you would have downloaded it from Dafont and installed it on your like copy of uh, Microsoft Publisher 99. It's lovely. <laughs> so that is a real nostalgia trip for me because it's such a time capsule of a particular point uh, in sort of pop cultural history. What I did like about it was this aspect we talked about before of Henry Selick being almost the the great lover of animation. And this is probably more than the other two, the one where he manages to cram in either riffs or references to so many different animation and art uh, eras of art as well you have from the very opening almost the cartoon of monkey bone which is such a delightful sort of parody slash riff on the weirder nickelodeon cartoons of the 1990s like ren and stimpy rocco's modern life it is but it's not funny crucially like it's not good it's it's supposed to be funny though because because the real the real um stew is sort of you know horrified by the I, whole monkey bone thing i get that but i think <laughs> if we were to give if we were to believe anything in this world like there needs to be you need to give us something to believe that someone could possibly like this character like, it, I, like these people in this room applauding this cartoon I, I, astonishing like there they should there had to be a joke and we'll get to it like there is one joke in this film and it happens at like the 80th minute like where it's a clear joke that actually gets a laugh but up until that point yeah yeah maybe it's like it's like so far be- like levels of irony are so deep from Selig where he's like no if you're if you if you don't think it's funny that's what i want i want this 90 minute comedy to not be funny because then i'm teaching you a lesson i think what i got from that first um, animation, just like the opening bit, was um, a bit of a like maybe you know a cartoonist slash animator trying to like pour out his soul, like make some good art, and all the audience sees is like a character that they can make a lot of merch off of, and that's like very they find it funny and maybe don't read much more into that, and like he's obviously really tired of like having to make monkey bone t-shirts or action figures and mugs and all this stuff and like just wants to get away from that and like actually like make art and sort out his own mind as well because isn't it something about his like drawing monkey bone with his left hand right and that's what comes out of his left hand then with his right hand he's making these like insane black and white nightmare scapes that are like so interesting and mad and so this is this is henry selick directing with his left hand and this this so with with good faith this is the half an hour of the film that's probably cut out that where they probably flesh this out um in bad faith they drop this completely because there is this thread about how monkey bone is this expression of some sort of inner um energy that he has that he gave up when he went straight went to therapy went to the head in the sleep consultant and you know went on the straight went uh, on the straight and who works at the sleep institute I, exactly but but the, but there there is this sense that there are the it's meant to be about this sort of tortured conflict that's in the artist about the sort of the wildness and the craft and monkey bone is the expression of you know it, it, it's it's juvenile in its expression but it's wild as well but then there's the darker elements that do show his artistry because he is drawing these hyper-detailed, nightmarish scenarios. All that stuff is really forgotten about very quickly, um, particularly once he gets into this nightmare realm where they're saying, hey, you were our like best nightmare guy. Where did you go? Um, you were providing us with all these great, scary settings in your artwork that you don't do anymore now you've gone and doing silly cartoons. Uh, so that stuff, I really think there's probably a good 15, 20 minutes of stuff there that we've lost. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, But I think right, it's 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 very interesting to come from Selleck as well, because I think at this point, how, is it like six, seven years after Nightmare? Like the character of Jack Skellington is already alive in Hot Topic and merchandised. And I thought it was really interesting that you've got him very quickly kind of Doing having this character who's leading this revolt against the commercialization of an animated character, 
and the mm-hmm. exploitation of that animated character for various means. Like, very, very interesting. And then prior to that is the scene where he's painting himself and his partner and the animated character and like the music is like it's lifted out of a porn film. Like it's like he's clearly being like the intimacy of the act of creating art uh is like is and how how close the camera is and that and how focused it is and then you like cut to the exploitation of that and that that is the pornification i suppose of the character and i i thought at this point this is really interesting coming from mm-hmm. this director but then it just goes nowhere well no actually it's the opposite it goes to too many places <laughs> I, I i think i will say the satire aspect this sort of corporate uh toyification satire of the media landscape as as it was at that point a very generation x type approach to it all where it's the purity of the artist versus the you know the um the toxic nature of business the man in the suits and the merchandise I don't think this film really nails that very well at all because it's very it's a very thin tightrope to walk. It's the sort of Josie and the Pussycats thing. It's sort of film which comes along a couple of years later and does the same thing for the pop world much better. But it's very hard at this point to be working within 20th Century Fox at the time. Very, you know, being very aware of the, of your role within animation and pop culture at large, and then try and take a pop at it. I also don't really think Henry Selleck. Henry Selleck seems to be, at least in the films he makes, much more of a personal filmmaker than somebody who wants to make a statement about the industry at large. That's very similar to Tim Burton in a way, where Tim Burton, his visions of satire of society at large will be like, very rarely go beyond the suburb he grew up in. Because it would be Edward Scissorhands or something, and it's all about the the gossip of the neighbours, rather than making some grand statement about pop culture. So I, I, th- I don't think that's really Selick's interest in this film it's much more about that internal psychological world of the of the artist going into the artist's brain how a normal looking human can come up with very abnormal concepts uh, but that's much, much more what he's interested in and as a filmmaker one way that this film carries on from the previous two i've said that his roots going and doing the course in character animation and experimental animation and i'm sort of laboring that point saying that every film seems to have some 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 sort of character innovation that he's doing and some sort of crazy experimental aspect and this one is really that to the max as much as we've seen so far because you have monkey bone this incredibly sophisticated stop motion creation and then everything that happens in the nightmare dreamscape world that you go into to um downtown and what do we think of that because it's as i said changing on the on the designs changing from inches to to feet it's a henry selick world made large what do we think well some of those characters are guys in suits right (laughs) yeah which i mean it gives me muppet vibes it's like very scary muppets um, so I wasn't opposed to it. And I think the like pigeons with human heads are going to like give me nightmares for ages because even though they're kind of the smaller scale stuff. Um, but I think the like actual like set design, even like obviously it's normal scale instead of miniature is really impressive. And like when he gets into downtown and when he goes into the um, like land of death and it's like a huge train station with the big kind of turntable and I think there's just like so much packed into that world. Like I'm really glad that stuff is still in there. And I think you get a really good dose of that world building and kind of bizarre characters and, and kind of atmosphere. Um, And I think that stuff like obviously really comes off as like very Selick, like instead of the, the kind of world where, um, Stu is like awake um I think that is like where it really kind of kicks off for me um I imagine like the graphic novel probably spends more time there as well and is more invested in dark town if that's the name of the book as well it's like yeah it's far and away the strongest stuff is when it's down here right the like we've mentioned before like how inventive he can be within his worlds not just to like give you that macro look of this broad landscape of what these worlds could look like but really get inside them 
and the kind of inner workings of them. I think this is a scarier location than anything in Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, and I think it, it adds to the satire as well. I think in the 90s, like you've got a huge amount of interest in all the various Disney parks and different ones opening as well. And this is a, a great parody of a Disneyland type venture. You've got scarier pigs than the ones that are in the start of Spirited Away. If we're looking at theme park pigs, like just horrifying. I think all of those creations, like just stuff that you've got to think, God, how, how does anyone come up with that? Like the like, um, like mechanical Whoopi Goldberg as death flicking Brendan Fraser into a life portal made out of Honest Abe's mouth that's floating in a pool in the sky. How? But like that, that's great, and that's just like that's like a big thing. But you've got you you want to just spend time there, and it is like being inside those other locations from Jane's and Giant Peach and Nightmare Before Christmas, where you and you wish that he took the same narrative approach that he did with those films, where it is a bit more episodic and it is a bit more freewheeling, and it's more about exploration than it is about being hooked into the narrative. Because this is just breakneck the whole way and you really can't keep up with that, with what is actually going on. And it sets itself too many rules to follow as well, um, like about how how things work. And like got the golden ticket machine is great, but now you've got to you need to you need to get the ticket from this place and that place. And then my body's going to go into that body and this body's going to that body. And also there's nightmare juice and you're drinking it and someone's going to steal it. I, it too, it's just too much. Um, when it, I mean, you said yeah. like about night spirited away, like this does give me the same vibe of like, it's a small child telling you like a dream they've had or like you're trying <laughs> to play a game with them and they're like, now this, now this, now this. But I think I kind of, I think it suits Henry Selick's like chaotic aesthetic maybe of mm. this film where everything is just like freewheeling off. You turn a corner and there's some like, mad scary creature or design like round there i think i prefer this to something like james and the giant peach where it's like it just slows down so much in the middle and then with this it's just breakneck speed like all the way um i think it kind of suits that and i i don't know how i would feel about like a sh quiet introspective moment in this film i just don't think it would fit no, i think that's fair although i think we do get some bits of it but i think we've we've mentioned that he really wears his influences on his sleeve. And I think moving into live action means that he can do more of that as well. Cause it opens him up to those live action filmmakers, but it kind of means like you're flipping between modes so quickly that you can't really spend long enough in a style of filmmaking to get invested in it uh, and connected to it before it shuffles off again. Cause you've got like the Bob Odenkirk, guys at the end who are really funny and but more like a screwball comedy but then you've also got like like silent era uh great kind of uh body movement stuff as well but then you've got the stop motion stuff you've got the nightmarish stuff and then also probably my favorite stuff in the whole film is this black and white david lynch erased ahead stuff <laughs> which is like i think you've you kind of set a rod for your own back when you say like this guy creates nightmares and we're going to put them on screen like the scariest stuff you've ever seen. And you look at it and you think, yeah, <laughs> this is pretty nasty stuff. This is really horrible. And I, I loved being inside those, like the effect of basically Brendan Fraser getting um, the treatment from under the skin where the body deflates like a like mm -hmm. a balloon and just like mm. all the life just gets sucked out of him amazing like i i like that a lot but the god like did you do you remember the jedi rocks sequence from the special edition of star wars uh where like in in jabba's bar where like this is not in the original version but it's like there's going to be a song and it's going to be horrible and there's going to be lots of new CGI characters and they're going to be horrible and they're going to be interacting with <laughs> things uh, but because they're CG interacting with the real world there's not really any they don't feel grounded in it whatsoever so it looks really disconcerting and nasty and it's like watching that but for like 60% of this film <laughs> I think you're right to point out individual details those nightmare sequences those black and white um, almost 
surreal medical illustrations come to life one which seems to be sort of inspired by the metamorphosis story of being a bug and being but being but being operated on as a bug was really very striking i think it's as always for me it's, it's little details i love the fact that death death has replaceable heads like a stop motion puppet so at one point her head explodes and then they just go to a, a, a cabinet where they've got lots of replacement heads so he's doing something there where it's like, what if we envisioned this live action character like it was a stop motion character, which is quite funny. But you're right in the sense that um, this feels to me like a key to unlock this who is Henry Selleck question we have hanging over the um, miniseries. And I do think he does like having strong creative collaborators. He'll always in interviews talk about his influences. He'll always... Um, nod to all of the artists and animators that he works with on his films he'll always shout out or back as he did with sam ham in this you know the, the the screenwriters and other creative partners this one feels like if there was just a, a much stronger screenwriter or producer present like tim burton like the ghost of roald dahl or as we'll <laughs> see in Coraline, like neil gaiman this could have been something special but what really struck me watching this is how it felt like a daisy chain of lots of other films at points so you mentioned star wars jake we go to a cantina in this mm. it's all the crazy creatures and <laughs> yeah. there's a you know there's some like music and singing in a cocktail bar with the character of monkey bone so sophisticated but much of what he's doing he's clearly set these hurdles for himself saying i want to do what was done in who framed roger rabbit with this character so they have a bit where monkey bone gives the live action character a kiss on the face there's a bit where they're you know strangling the, you know, the live action character is strangling the the uh, animated character. There's a bit where the animated character is stuffed into a coat. All these bits, if you've watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the, those are the amazing innovations they made to make it seem like Roger Rabbit had form and shape within this live action world, and they're doing the same with Monkey Bone. Similarly, it's very Tim Burtony, the sort of um, carnival style bureaucratic doctor's waiting room vision of this purgatory is very beetlejuice mm. and i feel like that that just leads me sadly to think that if we had a michael keaton playing Stu, or even probably who the 20th century fox thought they could get a jim carrey this would have been a very different film brendan fraser is a very different sort of actor and let's let's talk about him for a sec because He's had a bit of a renaissance in certain quarters of social media in the last few years as like the the himbo king. Um, this, luckily, he just this didn't dent his career. He immediately went went and made the Mummy Returns, <laughs> so this didn't bother him. But this is like a major box office bomb. And is that was he miscast or was he right for the role? What do you think? I mean, just he does wear a little goatee very well. The goatee is so horrible. <laughs> like, works so well. I think one of my notes was like, goatee, disgusting. <laughs> like, I cannot imagine. Like, I just think if Jim Carrey was in this, it would be like insufferable. Like, maybe that's just my. Jim Carrey, 1999. So, so th th that's why I think that, that the studio thought they had the mask or something like that, mm -hmm. where they could have done basically like, let's do a live action chuck jones ted avery kind of thing at times and so there's the, the, the intensity is being pushed in certain ways but jim carrey 2003 sort of post when he's done a few more dramatic roles where he could probably flip between the two could be good i don't know <laughs> i think brendan fraser's good for this i think it's like <laughs> george of the jungle was like not too much earlier than this as well mm -hmm. i think um i just think his yeah, when Monkey Bone is like taken over his body and he shaves in his little goatee and he's just being really like when he does the dance on the bed, awful. Yes, mm. and when he does the brick house <laughs> song at the end in his leather trousers, uh, yeah, he has like a certain element of like you cringe, but you're also having a great time, and I think he like carries it off really well. And then when he goes back to like when he's in his own body, he's like such a hollywood star he's so great and yeah just i think i'm just gonna go away and watch a bunch of brendan fraser movies after we finish this record but 
I think he was perfect <laughs> casting for it. <laughs> um, depending on what you want out of Monkey Bone, if like, because I will revisit Monkey Bone for its car crash qualities, and for that reason, I think he is perfectly cast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think when I when I mention Keaton and Carey, I just mean maybe more actors who have not only a great improvisational quality, they will bring something, but they also are great comedians and physical actors as well. Brendan Fraser is, I, I don't know, he's a great, he's a good actor and he's very magnetic on screen. He's really good in the Mummy films, I think. A, a, a good leading man. He does have his moments comedy-wise, but I wonder whether, maybe that would just be another a, a, another excess of energy. Yeah, I, I, I don't need. think, like, I don't know how much recasting would actually fix this. I, th- I think the, <laughs> the errors are far deeper than that. Um, but I, I, it, he's compelling. There's no denying that. Like he is committed to the performance, and you have to respect it when he's gyrating his buttocks to camera from a bed frame to Foxy Lady. Uh, you can't look away. Uh, and if that's not star quality, I don't know what is. Um, it, it's it's amazing stuff. Um, I, I, I I like him a lot, and yeah, everyone is everyone is committed to that point actually. And actually, Michael, thinking of mm-hmm. the influences when you. I so I didn't know the connection to the Burton Batmans, um, because Pete behind the curtain we basically try and not research too much on the me side so that I can react to stuff. Um, but I put that down as a note that the finale of the film, uh, like the big balloon floating in the sky and the poison gas, <laughs> is so Burton Batman as well. Uh, yeah, um, it's. It is really interesting that you kind of have this checklist running as you go down of just noting where he's lifting stuff from and twisting it into his own visions. Mm -hmm. I wonder if he had seen Men in Black when uh, he brought in the Chris Kattan uh, gymnast, because I think you can see so much of Vincent D'Onofrio's performance in that. That is really interesting. You mentioned um, Brickhouse and Foxy Lady. My own nightmare juice in this film is the soundtrack and again it's just the 90s i mean i'm gonna count this as a 90s film it was was very delayed and would have been released just sort of on the cusp of uh, the new millennium um but what what you you, it's not just foxy lady it's let's get it on that seamlessly transitions into foxy lady which denotes (laughs) denotes this is a this is a love scene Mm. then there's brick house there's also Minnie ripperton's loving you which are basically all songs that I think I only really knew about as a kid by their use in films. You're both Wayne's World fans. Mm-hmm. Foxy Lady, of course. Of course. So, so, yeah. so, so to me, Foxy Lady, f- from a very young age, was dorky guy pretends to be sexy song. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what Garth is doing in Wayne's World. So it's really, I guess now we live in a very different music supervision world where there is a broader range of songs available to people. But it just really feels like they grabbed the lowest hanging fruit song wise we were having a, a, a tender love scene we'll have Minnie ripperton we're having a sexy scene <laughs> we'll have foxy lady oh it's uh, yeah it's and and then love is the drug also pops up at one point Ho- right horrible cover yeah. awful very weird yeah. that's my nightmare fuel um i've got a question so in downtown where there are the other like nightmare creators Poe, like Stephen King Poe and Stephen so I want to get to Stephen King so in the in the lore of the film Cujo the dog took over Stephen King's body um but that meant that that happened 25 years ago so in the real world of the film that means that the the, the spirit of Cujo the dog has been writing 25 years worth of Stephen King books. Like, the Dark Tower series was written by Cujo the dog. <laughs> and, like, that, then presumably we've had, like, like 20 years of King since then as well. So, like, the like on writing, like, the memoir <laughs> writing guide and the sequel to The Shining, also written by Cujo the dog. Well, if Cujo's been writing for 20 years, he'll know how to write on writing. It yeah, that's sense. true. He's prolific. Um, that... I did enjoy the uh, 
death character saying that the South Park guy is a keen to <laughs> come down and meet her at the end. That just shows how like long South Park's been going. Yeah. It's yeah. like it, it's it's crazy. Those two that that whole um, dungeon sequence with the masters of the macabre, what do you want to call them? And then like that South Park gag, they made me groan. They were such really limp bits of the script i think i read somewhere and i couldn't really verify it's quite hard to verify that that was supposed to be a stephen king cameo um and he couldn't make it so they just got a stephen king lookalike and they don't call him stephen king he calls himself steve king and in the credits he's just called like man in dungeon doesn't stephen king not call himself stephen he calls himself like steph or something like casually Steve-o. or steve it's, it's not steven <laughs> to his friends so i thought that might be what it's what it's suggesting here that he's like mm. become pals with the other people um but yeah not 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 good stuff um so beyond brendan uh any other performances you guys want to point out before we go i mean like you said chris Catan. i think that gymnast whole sequence is hilarious so great uh, yeah i think he's he is the the highlight for me the elasticity of his body is just yeah. uh, unreal like, i don't know how anyone can twist that way like, it's it's an amazing just piece of physical exertion but then the amount of comedy that he gleans from it as well like when he's trying to open the door to the, the house and his head's <laughs> falling backwards and he's talking to someone over the road and like springing out of the hospital and gaffer taping up his open stomach just like such a good sequence and then setting up the big pole vault or the vault at the end and the way to get into the museum just yeah very very entertaining i perked up for all of that and that's also when you get the joke um which which i got a chuckle out of which is when bob odenkirk is chasing him and says we don't want to hurt you we just want your organs it's it's good 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 stuff (laughs) i'm glad you laughed jake Um, but um, what's something that I it made me think of, which like, of course I'm going to bring it up. Um, but like just thinking of kind of people revered as masters, then making a, a big failure um, made me think of 1941. Not because of kind of the context of it with Spielberg, um, but also the way that he referred to the film. And so I, I've got a, a quote about it, and I feel like you could apply this to monkey bone as well um and so 1941 was spielberg's like first attempt at doing a comedy like an action comedy that came after his amazing run um that had just he just had close encounters come out and this was the next thing and it's like a a navy a, a japanese submarine arrives off the coast of hollywood and chaos ensues he says i was very insecure with the material it wasn't making me laugh or any of us laugh, either in the dailies or on set. So I shot the movie every way I know how to, to try and save it from what I thought it actually became, which is a demolition derby. <laughs> and I think, yeah, you see that in Monkey Bone. It's just like, oh, the, the material is so weak. All we can do is just throw craft at it and just throw stuff that is going to catch the eye relentlessly and give it so much energy and cut it in such a way that it's got it's so high tempo that you try and veer around the fact that there is nothing at the heart of it mm-hmm. well he said he did say defended his writer so there must have been something in there i think mm. it's more like interference from too many cooks in maybe downtown. or he's just too or, or maybe he's just too loyal mm. he um it, it comes up in interviews a lot where he, where he's almost marveling at how tim burton who is sort of similar to Henry Selleck's sort of a weird, you know, shy guy, but Tim Burton changes and he can manage execs and uh, and other forces like that. And Selleck seems like he's you know jealous of that and he's never been able to crack that. And he's almost too loyal to his collaborators. But um, I, I do think I will point out about this, that even if he did shoot it every way he could, he really did the experimental stuff here with Monkey Bone, the character, is a technical feat that's worth looking at and then worth looking at the behind the scenes blue screen stuff because if you think about what's happening around this time we're getting close to the you know the the prequel trilogy of star wars we're we're on that cusp where a lot of cg looks terrible 
early Harry Potter CGI looks terrible whenever they're doing Quidditch. But what they're doing here is they're using CG techniques to put stop motion characters in a live action film. And it really works really well. And, uh, and this film gets bracketed with a lot of live action animation hybrid kind of failures like uh, Cool World or I know some people do like Looney Tunes back in action, but sort of similar period films like that. Um, but those are mixing hand-drawn animation with live-action characters. This is doing something very different, and that sort of makes this worth a watch, at least clips on YouTube, if, if not the whole film. Um, but Jake, I'm, I, I'm interested that you now say this This, this is Selix 1941, mm. so next is his Raiders, right? His Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, I bloody hope so. Wouldn't that be good? Um, yeah. <laughs> but, before, but before we put Monkey Bone to bed, any final comments on the film overall, Steph, Jake? So I guess we have the, the case for and the case against in some ways. Steph? These are our final statements. I think this is going to have um, a reassessment. I think it's like ripe for bringing back. And I think if anyone's not seen it um, and enjoys those kind of like really obvious needle drops, very like. Uh, knows that it's you know quite crude and like rude and um, but like still well made and obviously needs to be because of that kind of feat of animation and live action coming together. Um, yeah, I think we're I think we're living in the Monkey Bone reappraisal era. I I don't know if we're in the reappraisal era. Um, I think we're in the rewatch era, though. I will quite happily bring people round to the flat to watch this and watch them watching this and just check that I didn't dream that I watched it in the <laughs> nightmare realm. Um, and also, uh, we, did, we didn't get onto this at all, and it, maybe there's a whole other episode in it, but just like the psychosexual stuff of the whole film mm -hmm. is astonishing. Like the how Monkey Bone is created, um, which I, I, it bears not repeating, um, but... like. <laughs> That it's it is, it is the horniest film that is the least arousing in history. Like it, it it's like it is so obsessed with sex in in every single scene, and it's it is like I don't. It's quite horrible to watch at points. Just just how obsessed it is, and and you could you could pile this into his like um, allegory about commercialization. Like you could also do like the Freudian reading of Monkey Bone, and you could have like a twenty thousand word dissertation. I'm sure, like when you when you look at the the id and the ego and the super ego of the the monkey brain, of course, our monkey brain from when we were Neanderthals, and like that's what Monkey Bone is. And yes, this is actually all of our repressed desires put on a cinema screen once and for all. Um, so save that for another episode. <laughs> Um, but all in all, yeah, fascinating, very bad. Yeah, I, I think this is fascinating. And we love digging into that behind the scenes production story. We don't have car crash kind of films, projects like this very often anymore. Even films that kind of are the recent examples of that from the last decade or so, Jonah Hex, The Dark Tower, aren't interesting in this way. They're just anonymously directed and recut by the studio there isn't this high wire act of the the story they're trying to tell is too macabre for the for the audience or at least what the studio believes the audience to be the studio or at this strange kind of um political they have this sort of political saber rattling behind the scenes and they're very self-conscious and don't know what they're doing the filmmaker is biting off more than they can chew has got double the budget they've ever worked with and are trying some credible technical innovation as well so there's so much going on behind the scenes there's so much going on on screen that it can't help but be fascinating in some way but as a film if you were just go if i was going to just put this you know if this was a Friday evening in 2001 and I got this VHS from my local blockbuster and I was going to put it on as a, as a kid I would have not enjoyed this film um, and I don't think I really necessarily enjoyed it now apart from being this historical timepiece of, of what it is and also this fulcrum point in Henry Selleck's career after being told stop motion is definitely dead he makes this film which is dead on arrival and would never have been a hit really it, it was the best will in the world and what does he do? What happens next? I guess we'll 
talk about that next week. Um, but really fascinating. And this is one that I, I, I alluded to this earlier on Letterboxd. There are f- lots of five star reviews from the sort of Letterboxd uh, fruit and nut cases. <laughs> <laughs> Where it's just five star all timer is like all they say in the review. And their favorite films are all, you know, Satan Tango and <laughs> lots of uh, Satan Tango come and see Monkey Bone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we'd love this is one where the mailbag episode would be amazing for this so listeners please let us know what you make of monkey bone but we now need to do one thing before we sign off which is uh, find where it lands <laughs> on the top motion leaderboard which we'll do in a second time for top motion I think this is where we're all going to diverge, right? So, Steph, yeah. what's your top three? Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Then, to be fair, quite below that, Monkey Bone. <laughs> and then James and the Giant Peach. <laughs> okay, Jake? Um, well, it's Monkey Bone at the top, of course. <laughs> um, so, Monkey Bone is far and away at the bottom. Like, there is a chasm, uh, and, and then a trench, and then another chasm. Uh, between Monkey Bone and The Nightmare Before Christmas and then James and the Giant Peach remains at the top spot. And for me, it's Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach, Monkey Bone, just the chronological approach. I'm sorry, I'm very boring there. This is exciting though. I think this is the first time where there's no crossover at all between our lists this mm. this early in um in the series. Oh, well, let's see how it develops from there. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Next episode, we'll be back with Coraline, a new millennium, a new studio, a new era for stop motion animation with Henry Selick at the helm. Uh, Please do join us for that. Until then, though, you can keep up with us on social media. We are Ghibliatech on Twitter. We are Ghibliatech.pod on Instagram. Please check in with us at Patreon. I'm putting up all my footnotes for the research, lots of links to YouTube, lots of articles I'm digging out of the archive. Uh, you can find more information about that, patreon.com slash Ghibliatech. We're also doing some bonus episodes in our Library Cafe Patreon-exclusive miniseries where we'll be t- tackling Henry Selleck projects that he did between... Monkey Bone and Coraline, moonlighting as an animator for Wes Anderson on The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. We'll also be talking about Fantastic Mr. Fox, which he was at one point due to direct before Wes Anderson took it on himself. You can also follow us individually on Twitter. Steph is on Twitter at underscore Steph Watts. Jake is on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham. And Michael's there at Michael J. Leader. Bibliotech is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ying. Hi listeners, thank you for sticking with us through the credits. A little trivia nugget for this week. No, I don't want to shout out the Harry Knowles cameo. He's a dirtbag and should be left in 2001. But I do want to highlight a sort of weird sort of pub quiz bit of trivia that the miniseries has, uh, has, has rustled up so far. I'm going to call it Spouse Watch. We now have <laughs> two films with two husband and wife duos featured. So far we've had Chris Sarandon providing a voice of Jack Skellington, not the singing voice, the speaking voice of Jack Skellington in The Nightmare Before Christmas, followed by Susan Sarandon providing voice in James the Giant Peach. That's one. Spouse, spouse watch number one. Spouse watch number two, which is off the back of Monkey Bone. We have Bridget Fonda uh, as the main romantic lead, who is who later on would marry Danny Elfman, the composer and singing voice of Jack Skellington in The Nightmare Before Christmas. I just want to take the opportunity to shout out Bridget Fonda here. She was a mainstay of cinema through the 1990s and actually monkey bone was one of her final films before she retired from cinema she just didn't want to do it anymore i could probably see after the reception for monkey bone why she may have made that decision but if you're going to do anything off the back of this film maybe go back through budget fonda's um amazing career single white female she's great in 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Army Darkness. Oh, she's so good in Jackie Brown as well. Small, uh, Smaller role in that ensemble. And let's just remember that she was one of the great leading ladies of the 1990s. Worth a watch.